Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Regional demand for renewable hydropower from the Mekong River and its tributaries in Laos is on the rise. In June 2022, Laos imported 100 megawatts of hydropower to Singapore via Thailand and Malaysia. This was a historic milestone. And to put it in perspective, just one megawatt is enough to power between 750 and 1,000 American homes. That's a lot of hydropower and reinforces the idea that Laos is the battery of Asia. But how is hydropower affecting the ecology of the Mekong and the millions of people who depend on it? What consultation is taking place in regards to new developments, and is anyone actually listening to what local communities have to say? To explore these issues, I am joined by Dr Ming Li Yong, a fellow at the East West Centre in Honolulu, Hawaii. Ming Li researches transboundary water governance and hydropower development in the Mekong River Basin. Her work focuses on community-based natural resource management, civil society movements, public participation, and the institutional arrangements that influence the politics of water resources development. She received her PhD from the University of Sydney and has previously taught courses on environmental ethics, sustainability, and food in Cambodia at the School for Field Studies and Panasastra University, and also in Singapore at the National Institute of Education. Ming Li, welcome to SEAC Stories. Thank you, Natalie. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> now, I want to start by asking you to introduce us to the Mekong. Tell us a bit about it and why it is of such interest to you as a researcher. So the Mekong River is more than 4,000 kilometers long, and it actually flows through six countries. It originates in the Tibetan plateaus, uh, so it flows through China, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. So it is a transboundary river, and not just its mainstream is transboundary. Uh, if we think about its tributaries as well, um, some of these tributaries also flow through more than one country. What is fascinating about the Mekong River is its ecosystem. So it has this really unique ecosystem that's driven by its flood piles. And the flood piles essentially is this difference in water levels between the wet season and dry season. So during the wet season, the water levels in the river are high and during the dry season the water levels are low and this actually drives a lot of the ecological productivity in the river and one very important example of this ecological productivity is actually its wild capture fisheries and the Mekong River is actually one of the most productive inland fisheries in the world and this is a very important source of livelihoods and for security for the 60 million people who live in the lower Mekong River Basin especially. That's a great introduction to the Mekong. And how did you come to be interested in your specific research topic, which is about transboundary water governance? So I read an article about the Mekong for a geography class. And I just thought that the transboundary dynamics of how different countries try to share these water resources was extremely interesting. And then when I got to university, I actually went on a field studies program that allowed me to visit 
the Mekong, and I later had the opportunity to work on the Mekong for my honors thesis. And you know, I got started on trying to understand civil society narratives around hydropower development on the river where they converged and where they diverged. And I just thought that you know the diversity of viewpoints. Attached to the Mekong River, depending on what perspective you were coming from, I did think that was extremely interesting. And so, when I had the opportunity to do more research around community-based natural resource management, so actually going to villages in Changkong in northern Thailand to understand community-based natural resource management and the environmental conservation initiatives that were emerging around issues of development and transboundary water governance in that area. So that's really what got me hooked onto studying the Mekong. So I described Laos, one of the downstream countries, as the battery of Asia. Is this a fair assessment? Yes, uh, that is actually how the Lao government has positioned themselves. So this is contextualized in a broader plan in the Mekong region to establish a regional power grid. And within this power grid, the idea was that countries would trade electricity with each other. So countries that were producing surplus energy, like Laos, would be then exporting this hydropower to countries where there was a higher demand for energy, like Thailand and Vietnam. So Laos, being a landlocked country, sees itself as having you know, limited options in terms of economic development. So in order to kind of lift itself out of the least developed country status, one of the key economic pillars of development in Laos is actually developing hydropower. So one of the main natural resources that Laos have is the Mekong River and its tributaries, which comprise a large portion of the territory of Laos, actually. So, you know, compared to the other countries in the lower Mekong region, Laos actually has 23,000 megawatts of exploitable hydropower potential. So yes, it is fair to say that you know, Laos sees itself as the battery of Southeast Asia in this sense. 23,000, that's absolutely enormous. So can you tell us what are the ecological and human impacts of these hydropower projects? I assume there's many, many negative consequences. So um, can you talk us through the impact on ecosystems and, and communities? Sure. So at the more localised level with every, you know, with most types of hydropower development, no matter where they are, they do involve the displacement of communities from the villages that they have lived in probably for generations, just because the building of a dam um, requires the creation of these large-scale infrastructures, involves creating roads, and often these dams also have large reservoirs, which end up flooding a large proportion of land, and therefore communities are displaced. So one of the problems then is 
often around whether these communities are fairly compensated for the loss in land and loss of livelihoods. And often this isn't the case, unfortunately. So for the Mekong River, because it is a transboundary river system, hydropower development does have transboundary impacts. And so I think the stakes are a lot higher when we are trying to consider the cumulative ecological and human impacts of hydropower development. The major concerns has really been around how these hydropower dams block important fish migration routes. So I said before that the Mekong is one of the world's largest inland fisheries. And actually, these fish are fascinating in the sense that a lot of them have very long migration routes that also span multiple countries. So what these dams do is they put in physical barriers that prevent fish from migrating upstream or downstream to complete their life cycles. And so this is of huge concern because it threatens food security in the river basin, especially in countries like Cambodia and Laos, where fisheries account for up to 30% of the national protein supply and where fishers are often overrepresented in poor and vulnerable communities. This is a very big concern. Another thing that dams do is that they alter the flow of water. So proponents of hydropower will claim that dams have a regulatory impact on the river in that they might reduce flooding during the wet season and increase water supply during the dry season. But as I said before, it is the natural flood pulse of the river and these disparities between the wet season and dry season that actually drive the ecological productivity of the river. So for example, the changes in water levels actually provide a trigger for fish to migrate. So that is one of the major concerns in terms of the Mekong. And just briefly, other impacts, sediment is one of them. So the dams may block sediment that then may have impacts on the floodplains of the river where a lot of important agriculture is being carried out as well. Tell me about the public consultation process for these transboundary developments. Is there one? Depends. So at the present, there are public consultation procedures for dams built along the mainstream of the Lower Mekong River. And when I say the Lower Mekong River, that's not including China or Myanmar. What is the role of the Mekong River Commission, which I understand has been involved in some of these consultations? Who's behind this entity? The Mekong River Commission is an intergovernmental organisation comprising Thailand, Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And what this means is that at the highest decision-making level of the Mekong River Commission, or the MRC, is the Joint Council, and this comprises usually ministers of the Environmental Water Resources Ministries from each country. But the MRC also has a secretariat, which carries out the day-to-day work of the commission, and they produce a lot of the scientific knowledge around the Mekong River Basin, and also they 
are in charge of implementing these public consultation processes around hydropower development in the Mekong River Basin. So the consultation framework that the Mekong River Commission set up or established, was was that directed at one dam in particular or was it about hydropower development in general? Right. So this consultation framework, um, prior consultation, it actually falls into the broader procedures known as the Procedures for Notification, Prior Consultation and Agreement, or the PNPCA for short. And these procedures are actually in place to manage development around water resources along the Mekong River. So it doesn't strictly apply to hydropower dams, but any sort of large-scale development project that may impact on the river's flows. You know, which projects fall under these procedures will depend on where they are located, whether these projects will impact on the wet season or dry season flow of the river. But for hydropower development, what is happening is that for hydropower dams built on the tributaries of the Mekong River, these undergo the procedures for notification. So if a country wants to build a dam on the tributary of the Mekong River, all they have to do is notify the MRC of their intention to build a dam under the PNPCA. But if they want to build a dam on the mainstream of the Mekong River, the proposal has to go through the process of prior consultation. So very Broadly, this process of prior consultation has been carried out in relation to hydropower development on the mainstream of the Mekong River. And at present, it is only the government of Laos that has submitted their project proposals under this framework. So I understand that you participated in some of these consultations and and that must have been in Laos, is that right? Given that's the only place they've taken place? So the way these consultations are organised is that they take place at two levels. So at the regional stakeholder forums, the participants are broadly the MRC secretariat, representatives from each respective government, development partners, research institutes, NGOs, the media and the private sector. That's at regional level, you said. That sounds like it's almost everyone except the local community. Is there a process for local communities? Yes. For local communities, they can participate in stakeholder consultations that are organised by each country's national Mekong committees. So because these projects have been proposed by Laos, So far, there have been consultations held in Thailand, Cambodia and Vietnam organised by their respective National Mekong Committees that involve local communities. But in different countries, the extent to which local communities are included in these processes is varied. So for example, in Cambodia, this has been very limited, whereas in Thailand, there has been a little more community involvement. But I think, you know, across the board, civil society has generally criticized these processes for not doing enough to involve local communities. 
And if you think about it, that there are 60 million people living in the Lower Mekong Basin who depend on the Mekong River for their livelihoods or food security, you can start to see why the scale of the problem becomes so challenging. And I understand that many of these who participated in the consultation process subsequently criticised it as being a rubber stamp for hydropower development. Do you think those criticisms are warranted? I mean, can there truly be proper consultation, you know, for the impacted 60 million people? Is this just a rubber stamp prior to the development going ahead? So this is a really contentious issue because when the prior consultation process was triggered for the first time for the Zayaburi Dam, I think there were a lot of different interpretations over what this process should achieve. While it is, I think, you know, written in the Mekong Agreement on which the MRC is based, that one country cannot veto another country's development projects. I think during that round of prior consultation, there were a lot of stakeholders who were trying to question the feasibility of the dam and trying to propose a moratorium on mainstream dam development, at least until the impacts of these dams were better understood. But the Lam government thought that they had done their due diligence by submitting their project under these processes and in the end went ahead with the construction of the Zayaburi Dam despite these concerns being unresolved. And I think that's where the criticism of the rubber stamp comes up, that if you're having these consultation procedures, but it doesn't actually feed back into decision-making around the hydropower development in the river basin, then is it really a meaningful process? Does this process then become more about mitigating the impacts of hydropower dams that have already been planned, as opposed to questioning whether these dams should be built in the first place? And I think that's where that criticism is located. So we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, Ming Lee, and I want to wrap up by just asking you one last question about what the future looks like for hydropower developments in the Mekong River Basin. First of all, how many new developments and dams might we expect? And second, given the criticisms of this consultation process, do you expect that there will be any changes made to the consultation process around those new developments? So the Lao government seems pretty intent on following through with a lot of the hydropower projects on the mainstream of the river. So to date, they have carried out prior consultation five times, which means they've already submitted proposals for five hydropower dams on the mainstream of the Mekong River, and they might do more. In total, Laos actually has nine dams planned for the mainstream of the Mekong River, of which two are already built, the Zayaburi and the Don Saho Dam. As for the consultation processes going forward, I think you know, throughout each iteration of the prior consultation process, I do think that the MRC and some of the National Mekong Committees have made some effort in improving these processes. So, for example, by trying to include more people in these 
consultations by improving the accessibility of information that is being disseminated at these consultations, and in general, trying to improve the procedural elements of these consultations. But at the end of the day, I think this process is still plagued by certain unresolved concerns. So first, I think around the quality of environmental impact assessments that are submitted through these processes. And also, I think, you know, recognizing that these consultation processes will not have an impact, again, on decision making around hydropower development, which is why parts of civil society and some communities have boycotted this process because they do not see any point in participating anymore if the outcomes are not satisfactory to what they are expecting. So um, in relation to you know, whether these meetings were inclusive, I think there are three points that I would like to raise. So first, community representation was limited because of the ways in which these invitations were issued by the respective national MECO committees. And these lead to questions around how the public is being defined and often maybe is not being defined in the same way that civil society understands who should be considered. And second, I think due to the limited number of stakeholder consultations that were held, only a limited number of people could participate due to the logistics of attending these meetings. So for example, they might have to take a day off and travel very long distances to get to these meetings. Consultations were often also held in government buildings or hotels. And I think as community members, they may not feel fully comfortable in these spaces to express their opinions. And lastly, because these stakeholder consultations are organized by national government agencies, I'm referring to those that that local communities can participate in, and they also only deal with individual proposed projects. So I think for local communities, they don't really get the opportunity to discuss these issues at the regional level. So understanding hydro power development on a regional scale or discussing it with you know, potentially affected communities from other countries in the basin as well. I think you've painted a really complicated and, you know, at times quite grim picture of this so-called renewable and sustainable alternative energy source, which is only growing in Southeast Asia, you know, the impact on the environment and on local communities that it's having. Ming Lee, thank you so much for joining us on CX Stories. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you, Natalie. It's a delight to be here too. You've been listening to CX Stories. Brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.